real quick and say, welcome to Black Girl from Eugene. I am Aisha Elliott. I'm here with my guest, Eva Farah. And before we do get started, <clears throat> excuse me, I am going to give a shout out to the radio station that supports me and keeps me on the airwaves. And this is KPW, KEPWLP, Eugene's local radio station, 97.3. And also a wonderful shout out to my underwriter, Sundance National Foods, uh, located there on 24th and Hilliard. Thank you so much for your financial support and your ongoing support of the show and the topics that we bring up. So that is my news. news. Um, also, I want to give just a shout out to all my Patreons for supporting me with $5 donations. Uh, yes, to keep this podcast uh, going. Um, so $5, $10, $15 uh, donations get different interaction on my Patreon page. So if you're interested in supporting the Black Girl from Eugene, then please head over to Patreon and um, hit at $5 link. $5 is plenty to keep this podcast uh, moving. And um, I would appreciate it so, so, so much. Coming in the fall months, I do have some Black Girl from Eugene hoodies. If you are interested and we have the size available, I would like to sell out of the ones we have before I order a whole nother batch. So if you're interested in a black pullover, Black Girl from Eugene hoodie, it's got Black Girl from Eugene on the front, the logo on the back, um, hit me up in the DM and we I will send it directly to your house. And um, the cost of those are $45 without shipping. So... That is all for me and my little business that I have to do at the very beginning of the show. And I'm just like, Eva, your whole room is lighting my whole life up. I just love it. I love it so much. For people who are on audio and can't see Eva, it's like this beautiful coral kind of orange. And then there's like this teal blue. And then there's her in the middle. And it's like, it's just so pretty. She's got bright orange like earrings on. It's just wonderful. As I look outside and my view is beautiful. I've got lots of different colored trees falling from the fall leaves. And then it's just like, here I am in my black, brown, and white. Like, like <laughs> so I'm appreciating you. Um, so go ahead and I will, let me give a little introduction. Now, we thought about that we could probably do this on, on um, while the audio plays. And I'm going to read in the chat is what we decided uh, to do. And you all, you know, all my people who follow me, you guys are so patient and I appreciate you more than you know, because, you know, sis be struggling out here with <laughs> sis really struggles. Okay. So you know what, Eva, I think because you put the chat on before we recorded, it actually doesn't, oh no, there it is. Okay, cool. Never mind. I found it. Okay. So Eva, Thank you again, and I want, let me introduce you here. Uh, so at this point, wait a minute. So what I have is that what, what, what we are talking about here. I don't have that you're a Filipina-American mestiza committed to life work of liberation, healing, and justice. That's all I have written down, but what we have in this work is what we are going to talk about today. So we didn't actually, did you cut and paste your intro? You didn't cut and paste the intro. Okay, cool. So no, this, I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. So let me do this part. And did you want to say, I want to say that part. You guys, this is how it is. This is how it is. Um, and you emailed that to me, right? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, your picture is beautiful. This is oh. the picture I'm going to, it's so good. It's so good. Okay, I'm sorry. Everyone, I'm sorry. You're with me. You're with me. You're with me. Okay. So Eva is a Filipina-American mestizas committed to the life of liberation, healing, and justice. 
She is a marine scientist, educator, and equity consultant currently living in the Kalapuya Ilihi, uh, also known as Eugene, Oregon. Welcome, Eva. Now, I am going to say how you and I met, and then I want you to introduce more about what you do and who you are and all of this stuff. So we met at one of um, a community camp that Black Gold was was running alongside NAACP, and you came to help the kids do recreation, a recreational um, activity, and then it closed like as you approached because someone had got had contracted COVID, right? And so we had to close the whole camp down. But in that that small faith of that small moment of time, we were able to meet each other and immediately just start talking. And I immediately th- knew that you were like a good human. I was like, this person right here, I need to know. So we've been trying to work together in my new like new imagined a nonprofit. And because of all the quarantine and people and trying to line up the right the right lineup of folks who can get this done, it has been kind of bumpy. But now, Kids for the Culture is here and up and running, and we have, uh, we have activities almost every weekend. Kids are coming. And Eva will be one of our presentation, present, uh, presenters just coming soon and ongoing. So I'm super excited to have you on our team, working with us, being just available in the community, and to be able to talk to all the children in the community about the magic of being... Black and brown, honestly. <laughs> yes. So tell uh, us about you. I love, I love um, going back to that moment where we first met. And I remember feeling um, like uncertain what my role was supposed to be because I hadn't worked in that capacity with um, the uh, outdoor recreation group that I was working with. And, right. and so, yeah, but I was also like, oh, sweet, I get to be in this space um, with the NAACP and um, uh, Black Bold. And I was really excited to meet you and to learn more about your program. So it was so awesome when we got to meet up. I still remember like standing in the parking lot. I think we talked for like 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, just like really feeling that connection. And it was just really refreshing for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really appreciate um, going back to that moment and that memory of when we met. And yeah, I was so excited to hear more about Black Gold and do what I can to support that and bring folks in. Um, and like, yeah, I just want to keep supporting support that and bring folks. Oh, there's that echo. Yeah, it came through. <laughs> um, but yeah, just want to keep supporting your work. It's been amazing to see what you've been bringing into the community. And I feel really honored to know you and to be collaborating. So thanks for having me on. And yeah, and I just really enjoy like, all of our conversations that we have when we just have like a brief check-in on the phone that turns into like a, a more real conversation about other things that we do um, or our experiences with um, consulting or just our experiences in Eugene, Oregon, this like so-called progressive place. Like it is really grounding and affirming and it's just like a really nice space for that release to be able to be more unfiltered and reminded of our own humanity and like yes it is exhausting and um just being able to see each other so thank you i i really love being with you and getting to know you more yes thank you oh my god you said you've said so much like it's exactly what we were talking about even talking about because it's really true the the when we meet two authentic people who are in this space right it's almost like this beacon, you know, like there's a color. Everyone kind of drones around in, 
and these like it's kind of interesting that I even mentioned the color of your background like the people kind of drone around kind of doing the same thing being thinking about the same things feeling the same things and then then ever so often you get like a, a spark of light right and it and if it resonates with you it draws your attention and that's how I've been con- having my connections happen in my life in the last few years it's like I'm not I've been trying to really 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 ground myself in a way that does not allow me to just kind of go with the the flow that isn't doesn't speak to me and that goes along with people as well like I of course you can meet lots of you'll meet lots of people and you'll go along doing lots of things but when it comes to like connecting working your heart's work with someone else or like even just being able to say, hey, we can have this communication. I can actually talk to you. You can actually hear me. I will actually be able to support. I feel like you might be able to support me. Like, I think we can actually have a real human dichot- like dichotomy, like a, like a dynamic here. Mm-hmm. Lately, it feels like it's like almost a light sparks, right? Like, it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it feels that dramatic to me. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of a dramatic person, though. But... <laughs> I mean, right? I think I might be you. <laughs> yeah. I kind of live in the dramatics. But um, so anyway, we were actually talking about just in that we've, we've worked and talked about a lot of things over the time that we've met, which was actually over a year ago because of mm-hmm. now it was, yeah, it's been over a year. Um, and the one thing that we do that you work on is DEI education. And I am a DEI educator and we... Do, do you, are you lecturing? Um, not currently. Okay. So, but what, what does your DI education look like? Um, it looks lots of different ways. And honestly, I had taken a step back during the pandemic, um, from doing it. And part of it was because of the pandemic and I needed to like stay my ass at home <laughs> and, um, take care of my loved ones, um, and myself. And the other reason is like, I was witnessing all these um, patterns of whiteness and privilege play out even within like really deep work. Um, um, patterns of whiteness and privilege play out even with um, that I needed to take a step back. And as I was like also growing in my understanding of how nonprofits function, um, how and other systems of oppression and domination that are interlocking like capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, I really need to like step back. So um, I haven't been um, doing a lot of consulting work, but I am actually just stepping back into it. Um, And so it's usually like an educational or facilitated space that I try and uh, support being really participatory. So people are having a conversation together Um, and it is multiple days. Um, so we can really get into, um, how racism functions individually, culturally, and structurally or institutionally. Mm -hmm. Um, and then make the connections to many other intersectional and interlocked interlocking oppressions and like ground it in that workplace. Um, like how is it being expressed and enacted here? Mm -hmm. And what are the ways like that you have been, advancing, you know, you might call it equity, you might call it inclusion. Um, what are the ways that you're resisting and dismantling white supremacy and other forms of oppression, but really also being humble and real and honest 
and saying, and here are the ways that we're perpetuating it because we can't stop something. We can't change something if we are unwilling to see it or if we actually um, are so caught up in our privilege that we can't even see it. We can't even recognize when there's violence happening in our own space, right? That part. That part. Yeah. I mean, that part. I say it all of the time. There's there's nothing that we can do. I, I, there, there's, if you don't, if you're refusing to recognize racism as a thing, then what, then what are we doing here? Like, we can't actually start this work if you can't recognize the problem. How are you going, what do you work, what exactly are you working towards? And then as soon as you want to switch the narrative from the problem as if it's outside of who they are, or if it's outside of capitalism, or if it's outside of the workspace or the environment or the, the, you know, the things that they believe in every single day, then we're already not on the right path, right? And then how do we bridge this without, um, in, in such a highly skilled way, to be able to bring people who are a privilege and not only a privilege, but like they have wrapped their whole identity in their superiority without recognizing that they have wrapped their identity in superiority to bring it down to like, Honey, you're the walking perpetuation of racism. I, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, so this is kind of like a very, de- very delicate conversation to really have if you're really trying to teach, I believe. You know, I believe it's about a lot of spirituality tied into this. Um, there's a lot of real, real deep damage healing um, on, on like globally. But when talking to white people particularly, it's, I get a lot, I get a lot of flack for it, actually. I get a lot of flack for being so, moving so slowly and really like walking through step by step, kind of like the, I'm air quoting, hand holding, you know what I mean? Because I particularly see that, that inability to see that privilege not, I, I kind of see it as an, a mental issue. <laughs> you know, I, I look at it psych, in, like in a way of psychology mm-hmm. not, and in behavior, you know, and how you cognize things. Um, and meaning that then the environment and the social environment and like you said, media, commercialism is all feeding this issue to maintain its to maintain its its disability, to maintain its inability to actually function properly, so it's it's kind of like um, I don't know. It's pretty. It's it's become more and more complex for me as I have lo- have done it more years in order okay. to to try to really um, make an, an an impact. You know what I mean? I I waffle back and forth between individual impact and systemic impact and how to do them both, and which one I really want to focus on, and one, which one actually feeds the other most efficiently, which one, like that kind of thing, like where is the, the actual red button? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you, found, yeah. have you found that? I mean, you seem very steady in your approach. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there's like a core foundation um, that I that kind of grounds me that I move from. And I'm also exploring like other ways of, of playing with that. Um, but I appreciate that because some, you know, I have my own questions about it. Um, and I will say, um, that 
this a lot of the structuring of my approach um, comes through um, Hani Fazel and uh, Frawaini Kiros um, from the Center uh, for Equity and Inclusion in Portland, um, and then their connections with the Center for Dismantling Racism in North Carolina. Which, if you're familiar with Tema Okun's piece, um, the characteristics of white supremacy culture. Yeah. Um, which it, like for me, I'm like, that's a foundational piece. I use that all the time. I like, use it all the time. It's the, it's exactly, it's so I start with it every time. Yeah. It's my foundation. Yeah. Piece. Um, but so a lot of my structuring came, comes from my learnings from them and how, um, I've seen them facilitate or break down, um, white supremacy and racism. Um, just because it, yeah, it gives that structure that is like, makes it a little more easy to move from mm-hmm. and to kind of like identify like what's happening culturally what's happening structurally and what's happening individually mm-hmm. and all the and I really appreciate like you speaking to the importance of doing that inner that personal individual inner work um but that it does need to be tied to the collective because all mm-hmm. those other like we are entangled in these systems and we're not just these like completely free agents separate from the systems mm-hmm. And so it's really important that we're continuing to move and be able to have these complex conversations where we can oscillate it to our personal inner work, but also see how it's tied to cultural. Like there's a lot of ways that um, we might think that our behavior is like unique, but if you ask somebody who's not from the U.S., they're like, all Americans do that or like, that is a really common pattern for Americans to choose this behavior in public. And Mm -hmm. so it's not that, um, you know, we're um, a machine that it's something is thinking for us, but there's something about culture and patterns and we follow those patterns because we've been taught them from a really long time, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and something else that you said, um, I, I really want to uplift and, and speak to more around like, when you're in a, a place <laughs> where um, you're seeing your own beliefs, values, language, um, and other behaviors like reflected all around you, it's affirming. And so it's harder to think that there might be a different worldview um, yeah. or it's harder to see the impact of your actions. And, um, and I can say like when that's like white supremacy, always reaffirming white supremacy. Um, even if even if it appears that's happening in a spectrum of like good whites and bad whites, mm-hmm. and um, that is always creating more superiority, right? And at the same time, whenever superiority is being created, inferiority, oppression is happening. So when you were talking about that, I was thinking about yeah, when I was a little kid growing up in here, mm-hmm. I learned very quickly that I was not white. I wasn't necessarily given a race, but I learned that I was not white. And so I wasn't okay. And at a, as a really young kid, you know, five, six years old, that was affirmed in every space that I was in. Exactly. I do not belong. My people don't look like leaders, don't look like my family or me or other <laughs> loved ones, um, except for like my white family members. And so when I'm moving through every space, when I'm watching movies, the commercials, et cetera, like everything you do in your life, mundane or otherwise, it's being constantly reaffirmed. And so for somebody who has an oppressed racial identity or an oppressed identity, it's really easy to internalize that because the smart thing that we are doing that unfortunately can cause internalization is 
we are looking beyond our, our, ourselves to be affirmed. Um, and I think a lot of us who come from cultures and ethnicities where we're more collective, it's important how the group accept, accepts or receives us because we know that we are not operating alone, that not everything is just about us. And so it's important because we're very relational and we want to create re reciprocity. So when we're consistently told something, that's like one of the ways that we think that's what truth is. Right. That's, that's how in our, in our cultures, and I'm saying our being black other than white, really, um, it's interesting what you were saying when you brought back the, like the tenets of white supremacist culture um, and having to really understand that black and brown people are re relational. If you look at those tenets of supremacist culture, it absolutely talks about in almost every way, it's almost the exact opposite of what we naturally do. Right. And yeah. so for us to be able to assimilate to this culture, we are actually having to drop our own natural ability to and not necessarily drop it, but we definitely have to put aside our own natural ability to relate to one another, which in itself causes a, a very deep spiritual harm to, to the how we navigate the world. Like you were explaining the, the affirming of who you are in the space of the world, who you are in relation to society, who you are in relation to your teacher, to education. And so if the society is affirming white supremacy and we are trying to live as black and brown people in a, a tightly affirmed white supremacist culture, what are, we, what are we having to give up just to survive and be there? But at the same time, it's really, for me, when I think about the resilience, and I, I'm air quoting resiliency, the resiliency of black and brown people having to live within uh, this racial confine, right? And then still be able to travel to, you know, I don't know, to the Philippines, travel to South Asia, travel to Europe and be like, you're as American as American as American gets, right? <laughs> and, then, and then have to come back to America um, and, and see just how American we are, right? That, that is a mental clusterfuck if I have ever, you know, thought about the, the, the interconnectivity of, of the reality of self, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so black and brown people being relational, having to have the reciprocity to be able to see and hear. This is something we talked about, see and hear ourselves. We talk about a lot in the work that I'm doing with white families raising children of color. Right. Because if we can come home um, and be affirmed in our home of who we are, of our place, of, of our place in in uh respect and our place in, in what's the word I'm looking for in capacity. Like we are filled with love and joy and brilliance. And then we get thrown back outside to deal with our, our teachers and all their affirmations of white supremacy. Right. But mm -hmm. when you can come home and get refilled with that love, um, that you have a sense of balance. You have a, a something to look at and say, this is what I am and this is what I am not. You know what I mean? And then in that space, you start to understand how you can relate and how, what, is to be, what is to be given and taken. And so without that home base and without that, even that community base, that robust base that tells you, that, that defies anti-blackness, that tells you pro-brown and black togetherness, it's, it's really, 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 I, I mean, in, in a, with the, the sake of feeling, sounding very woo, it's really amazing how black and brown people come out into the world and can remain whole. Yes. 
Absolutely. You know, and so I was gonna, I was talking about how I just traveled back from Chicago, <laughs> and um, I'm laughing because me and my, uh, me and a very close friend of mine and my niece went to Chicago for a few days, and when we were driving, not driving, we didn't drive, we flew. When we were flying back, uh, we were at the airport, and there was this white woman mm. doing the most, just like. Me and my girlfriend looked at each other. I was like, are we witnessing a Karen right now? <laughs> like in real life? Like this is an actual airport viral worthy Karen meltdown, right? And so I, I was like, she was like, should we record it? I'm like, not until she hit somebody. But we were literally just like watching her. And she was really mad because you know how when you're in the air at TSA and mm-hmm. they take your bag out? Like just randomly, you know, to, to search. Randomly. <laughs> yeah, randomly. Um, right. Well, for her, it was random, and she wasn't one of the random people who should be randomly picked because she was right. white and old and, like, you know, so she could not. And the, what was interesting about what she was saying to me, besides the fact that she was screaming like someone had shot her in her leg, she was screaming. And she said, why would she kept saying, why are you doing this to me? Right? Why are you doing it to me? And I thought to myself, in opposed to whom? <laughs> right? Right? And me and my friend are like, we're at a distance, but we're watching like popcorn. Like we want to see what's happening. And I thought to myself like, damn, she's been screaming for a really long time. When are they going to cart her off into the, to the wall or to the room that us black and brown people know so well? When does she get to go and get caught? You know what I'm saying? Like, when does that happen? And we were like, we just looked at each other. And my friend, of course, she's black too. We looked at each other and I said, we got to go before this gets real. Before it gets real. Because I don't want to see somebody, you know, I don't want to see her hit someone and have to see them like try to gently wrestle her out of the space. When I know 10 minutes ago, a black and brown person would have been on the ground by now you know, handcuffed and removed. So it was just in real time, we were just like, wow, look at this woman. But what really stuck out to me was her, her, um, her like disgust that they would pick on her. Right. It wasn't a, like, you're making my plane late. It wasn't like, this is so inconvenient, like put my stuff back in the bag. It wasn't any of that. It was like, you chose me? How dare you? Like, it was very much the audacity (laughs) to take time out of my day, (laughs) right? And I was just like, I was in awe. That's the part that I was in awe of. It wasn't even the loudness. It was just that she was appalled that her privilege did not stand a chance in this moment. Although she was still very much benefiting from her damn privilege. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. She was enacting all the privilege in that moment. She was pulling it all out from everywhere. She was pulling it from everywhere. And all of the TS people were, were, as you're saying, affirming her privilege by never putting their hand on her, never asking her to be quiet, never removing her from the passengers and the children who were witnessing the bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, it was never something that, that they were even going to do. And I, by the time I was done watching her, it had been 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. It was long enough. You know what I mean? For a long time, especially like in the moment of yelling, like 10 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm starting from the beginning of the, I'm starting from like when, from the beginning of her, of when she started to have to take her shoes off. 
And of course we were like, maybe she has mental health issues. And I'm like, maybe they all do. Like, what, how, how do you, you I, there's plenty of black and brown people who've got mental health issues that know how to act when you're going, being going through the, the line at the end, take off your shoes, you know? Don't, don't, don't scream, don't, hey, you do all the things you need. Bring your heavy blanket, take your time, come early. Do all of these things, ask for special circumstances, come out of the crowd, but you don't get to be treated in a way that is above all other human beings. And the truth of it is, is that even though I say that, she absolutely was still treated above all other human beings. Oh, absolutely. And that's the part that, bother, that that's the part that gets, gets to me where we, as we were even talking earlier, is that that acknowledgement of privilege that they don't even understand that they are already operating within and mm-hmm. coming to the education piece of it with us and, and wanting to collaborate or wanting to hire us or wanting to have these conversations and not recognize their everyday privilege. Yeah, and that entitlement around yes. their privilege. Like, you can't inconvenience me me <laughs> right right yeah. I, I'm sorry my comfort is is entitled my comfort is in the name like I demand yeah. comfort at all times and this this is something I'm not going to do you know what I mean um, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's also tied to I don't know maybe I would call it an obsession with innocence um there's a nice. lot of fragility around white people um Well, in general, period, right? (laughs) But I have just noticed so much protection around their innocence, like in conversations with folks, um, in DEI work, in trying to collaborate with um, organizations that want to help support my um, independent programs and projects, like having to navigate uh, relationships with white folks. It's so hard to have real conversations with them. And it's so exhausting because Mm -hmm. the innocence is always centered. So whenever there's something wrong, it's like, actually it's because I'm innocent. And so we can't actually solve anything when innocence is being protected more than actually just listening to like, what was the impact of this uh, practice or protocol or this thing that I said or did, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What are the ways that I didn't listen? Like just have some responsibility and, yeah, I mean, and I think that's also tied, it's also tied to the guilt, right? It's also tied to, um, like, Eve Tuck and um, Wayne Young and their amazing piece. If folks have not read um, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, I urge and encourage you to check that piece out. It is, it is amazing, Um but they talk about settler moves to innocence. So all these really specific ways that are their tactics, essentially, that white settlers here in, in the settler colonial U.S. Um, try to protect their innocence around occupying, stealing, and not just stealing indigenous land, but through genocide, through like tr- all the trigger warnings. OK, but right. through rape, right, mm-hmm. like through ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much protection around innocence um, and so much fragility that it helps create that erasure. It helps invisibilize these, the actual history when we contextualize the actual history of the lands that we occupy, whether we were brought here consensually or not. Right. And so I think that's something that is like this undercurrent that I see coming up in a lot of 
DEI work. And a lot of people who want to write equity statements or um, and get in the, or like want to support a BIPOC pro- centered program um, is that they continue to center themselves and their innocence and their goodness. And I'm like, just let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, something that I heard you speaking to in this like specific airport uh, moment, which like, I feel like I've seen that in an airport. I've definitely seen it in professional spaces where like that kind of behavior is not considered appropriate, let alone professional. Um, but it's always white folks who are able to get away from with it. And like what I hear you saying, like when there's no way that a black or brown person could do that for 10 minutes and walk away unharmed. Um, And like the thing is, is like we don't want white people like we still want people's humanity to be seen. And that's like what she got in that moment is like her humanity was still being held. So she wasn't harmed in that process. They didn't bring her to the ground. Um, they didn't take her away. They didn't interrogate mm-hmm. her, right? She got to do that. She got to have her freak out moment that was like really ego-based and really like taking these really personal, even though like there are rules in an airport, whether you agree with them or not, you are signing a contract when you go to the airport that you have to operate in this way or there's consequences. I'm not saying that I support the rules, but we know that, right? right and so exactly. when white people are in there, and then they're entitled when they are subject to those rules that they don't want to follow. That's all privilege, you know? I mean, I was, that, that was, I will, I will say, um, we were in, were we already there? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that was Chicago. That, that may have been Salt Lake City. I don't know. When we got to Salt Lake City, there was another incident of a, a black woman. Um, I thought she was a black woman. And uh, she was confused about her luggage being removed from the plane. You know how that if your thing is too big, they'll check it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so she thought she was going to get her plane, her bag back. And then she wasn't going to get her plane back. She was like, oh, I left it there. They go, oh, no, we took it and we put it down with the other bags. We, we checked it to, the, to your thing. And she was like, oh, um, but they're like, but we'll go check for you. So they go back and check. So that seems very human right like i you have a problem i'll help you let me go figure it out you're insisting that the bag is there i doubt that it is but i'm gonna go take a look let's just do that so they they said the bag's not there so they tell her we checked it for you and she's like oh i didn't know that you guys were gonna check it and she's like no 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 i didn't catch an accent but i wasn't really listening that hard you know i was just i i always notice a group of white folks and one black person like i'm always like you know what i mean so so i'm always like a witness for what's happening and so anyway i was like i watched her and they told her no we checked it's at the carousel which was actually wrong information they're like it's at the carousel right so she went to the carousel and she like rolled her eyes and then was like ugh. so she went to the carousel Came, comes back and was like, my bag is not there. Like, where's my bag, right? And so then the flight people come out and they're like, oh no, your bag got checked all the way to Nairobi. And I was like, oh my God, she's not American, first. Second, um, her, her English was, seemed really good, which they speak English in Nairobi, but I didn't catch an accent, right? So I was like not thinking that she was African. So when she, when she was talking to these people, after she left, they, they were like talking about how rude she was. 
And like just how like she could just say thank you. This one woman, like, wow. white woman, right? She could have said thank you that we checked her bag for her. Instead, she's like huffing and puffing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, you are in Salt Lake City as an African woman by yourself traveling. She could not have been older than 25. She does not know how the system of our bags work. Most fucking Americans that fly the United States air doesn't know how the bag system works, right? And these people, it's like a group of white folks who are in uniform. She's asking for help. And they're like, she could, she's so rude. And they just started talking about her. And I was, me and my friend go, oh my gosh, she's from Nairobi. Like, like we were like, at no, mo- at no point did they believe to think and stop that, and give her, what, what you're describing, give her kindness. Give her a human experience. Give her the fact that she's in a completely different continent and country with social skills that are so different from any other place that she's, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. none of that kindness even crossed the flight and pilot's mind. She was just a rude black girl who was like getting on their nerves. And it was just that moment of like exactly what you're saying, to afford, hum- to afford humanity to each other. Anti-blackness is so deep and so steeped. There is no connection to humanity to blackness, right? There's, there's only a set, a, it's almost as if black people have escaped commodity, being a commodity and only belong in that space of being sold, um, uh, being bought and sold and controlled. We've never, the, the, the entity, the state, the society as a whole, the system has never um, said anything against, has never gone back has never erased what anti-blackness has done to the safety of this community, right? It never has, has, never has said, we were wrong. This was not the right way of doing things. This is incorrect. Here's, here's the truth, right? This, is, this community is capable, is full, is lively, should, is, is the backbone of our society. None of it has come from the system to correct what has been the truth in society about black people. So to afford humanity to black people, white people feel like they're doing someone a favor. They feel like they're doing something exceptional. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a big part of the problem. Black people, even in this day, looking dead at 2022, are still not considered worthy of of human decency. Right, yeah. Even at our level of education, even at our level of professional, professionalism, I'm air quoting, even at our level of lecture and, 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 um, and education, educating the masses, the, the, the ability to have human consideration is, is still like pretty low <laughs> on the, yes, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. Anti-blackness is something that people I don't think quite understand the concept very well. And how that it feeds in, how it feeds into racism, and that it's a, it's really a whole new gloss over race. It's a whole, it's like a placard of racism on top of racism, is this anti-blackness. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that anti-blackness is the core of white supremacy, right? Because mm-hmm. what I mean, white supremacy doesn't. It operates in the way that like white folks, people who are racialized as white, are superior than everyone else who is not racialized as white. But white supremacy is very specific, who is, by creating the binary hierarchy of who's on top and who's on bottom, like, 
black folks are on the bottom. People are racialized as black. And so white supremacy could operate in a way where it's just superior, period. But it's very specific. It requires anti-blackness. Right. Um, and, or at least in the way that it plays out today, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, Sorry, not today. <laughs> has been carrying out for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? right? And so I think that that's really essential in anyone's um, engagement with unlearning uh, racism, you know, no matter what their race is, because no matter what your race is, you're still taught that shit. I was just going to say that part. Yes. Yeah. Anti-blackness is not just a white supremacist. It's a white supremacist ideal set, but people, anti-blackness is, it does not have one particular race that practices anti-blackness black folks can practice anti-blackness you know what i mean and do and have been taught and have and um and the and at some points you know like like we were talking about before the the affirmation and the affirming of anti-blackness from a black person can get you further along um Mm. you know financially educationally than than folks who are absolutely not anti-black right that part if you are you are 100 percent pro-black right now you're a terrorist now you cannot go come here like what are you talking about talking all of that craziness yeah no i mean you it's just you just will you will not be in the door you cannot be let in the door right yeah um yeah it's the fear of pro-blackness as many times that just if we take bring it back down to like the street level of understanding as many times as i've been asked from white folks if they can wear pro-black clothing Mm. And, and and feeling like they're like they shouldn't be, and I'm like, well, are you pro Nike? <laughs> like you know, like you're you're, you're support you're supporting Nike like left hand over foot, right? It's like you you support I don't know uh, NFL. You support all of it. Why not support blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Where's your money going? Are you asking who your grocery supports? Like yes, be pro black like that because once you if you start like you were talking about this, the the. Um, the, the layers, if you start at blackness, you will help everything else out. It, racism is, like you said, it's based in anti-blackness. So if we start pro-black and move up, everything has to change. Mm-hmm. But that sounds like it's radical, which is, ev- right? which is evidential to anti-blackness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. So, anyway, I'm sorry. What were yeah. you saying? No, I super appreciate that. And I will say... Um, that anti-blackness exists, like you were saying, like in every, um, in every racial group, you know, like in, like Filipinos are not a racial group, but in our culture, um, in our, yeah. And, you know, Filipinos in the diaspora, as well as back on, in our motherland, like anti-blackness is real and it may not be named. It may not be, we may not always use that term, but we understand the darker your skin um, and other phenotypical uh, or phenotypes um, that are associated with blackness, um, the less X, Y, Z, right? The less access you'll have, the less opportunities, the less beautiful, um, the less valuable. Um, and so it's it's rampant, you know, and white supremacy is exported everywhere. Um, and you don't even need white people present anymore for it to be functioning, which is... Scary. Man, I would love the game plan on that one because I don't know how, but I mean, to be able to, uh, I mean, just this, this harm is just, 
deep, genetically deep. It's DNA deep. You know what I mean? And for us to be able to have been programmed to hate ourselves, um, it is just like, wow. You know, we are very, very, very beautiful um, beings in, in the entirety of, hum- of, of being human. The, the level of impress- impressionist, the, you know, impressionability that a human baby has, that a human being has, right? And all of these layers of, of pain and fear and power have created this this reality that you know requires us to have these types of conversations so that we can try to find our core base and we can try to understand what our core base is and at the same time give to the fight for the many the fight for the collective that we don't not recognize the harm that we've been through right we can't just say that never happened let's move forward no matter what we have to be able to recognize and carry that harm with us to to work to recognize and carry that the fight forward, right? Yeah, it's this 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 system, um, this reality is so complex that it's if you understand it all or if you understand a good good majority of it, it's really easy to find yourself lost in where do I belong in this fight, you know? And so I really understand and love and appreciate when I meet someone like yourself and other people who have who have through our ancestry line and through our connection to um, our ancestral space and energy that we can stay grounded in a work that is painful and harmful and at the same time recognize when we are in that space and be able to pull ourselves out and pull ourselves and put ourselves back in um, I think I was ta- I don't know was I ever talking to you about was I ever talking to you about that? <laughs> I was trying to think of a friend of mine. Where we were talking about like living in Eugene as women of color. Mm-hmm. And um, beside the work that we do, like, like our social lives, like how do you feed yourself? Like not just feed yourself in terms of food, but how do you feed yourself with your energy, your love, your life? Like how do you wake up and be like, I am going to be the best Eva, uh, you know, ever. And I'm just going to shine and shine and shine. Like, how do you, how are you fed, right? To maintain that as you walk into the streets and know that we are actually constantly combating every single thing we just spoke of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard in Eugene, you know. Um, And I, I really appreciate that question because... I think it's really important that we are able to engage in complicated, challenging, painful conversations and work um, because we are all hurting from all these oppressive and dominating systems. And, um, and like we also, if we only focus on what we've been through, um, through the, if we only focus on suffering, it's so easy to miss all the other parts that are part of um, who we are and who our people are. Like I was just learning about Marcus Garvey and a hundred years ago, he created uh, the black star ship lines that was specifically to um, bring resources to redistribute resources just to people of the African diaspora and back to people in Africa on the continent of Africa. And I was like, this was a hundred years ago. 
like that is amazing and um I really, I, I learn a lot from, um, I think it's called Bookman Academy. I don't know how to pronounce it, um, but um, they were, they're on Instagram um, and they were just talking about like Marcus Garvey's, Garvey's uh, um, incredible ability um, to, or just like his ambition is just like amazing off the charts, um, but his execution, like actually bringing things into fruition is just like amazing, incredible, like, and so that's hard to think of that existing today, but this existed a hundred years ago. So me as like a non-black person learning about it, like, I just, I think that's so incredible and no wonder, like, we don't hear about this. Like we don't, like, I haven't learned about it until recently. I'm almost 40. Yeah. And so it's this late in my life that I'm learning about this, but I have heard Marcus Garvey's, Garvey's name in my life. Yeah. Um, and so there's also choices that I was making and not making. Right. Um, and, but I think it's important because like one of the things that they were uplifting is like when we learn more about our history and who our people are and were and what we have done like for our people, whether it's in resistance to colonization, imperialism and white supremacy, or whether it was just like what we were doing before we even had to deal with that, um, or what we're building alternatively, like what we, what are we doing to contribute and advance liberation, right? Um, that is, those are like energizing sources for me. It fortifies the work that I do. It, it like my heart gets so full because I'm so excited to see these beacons, right, of people who are so brilliant and so wise and so creative and also coming from a place of so much love mm -hmm. and so for me you know as someone that I love learning was probably why I became an educator um is because I like to continue to learn and I like to share about it but like learning and unlearning is like a huge energizing source for me especially when it's like coming coming back into our peoples, like learning about Babylons, um, our Helots, um, our Filipino, like spiritual healers and um, practitioners of things that we might even, that are around healing and spirituality. Um, I won't use the word shaman because I learned that that specifically comes from a Mongolian context. So every time somebody is using the word shaman, that's not about someone who's from Mongolia. It's oh. used very inappropriately. So I'm like trying to cut that out of my vocabulary. But um, oh, some people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, some people uh, would use that term for um, violence. But in Anything our Filipino yeah. history, those are some of our leaders that have that were very prevalent. Um, they were all different genders. They, you know, gender was not approached in the same way. Um, and so even the language we describe it in English can kind of change the way that we think about our past, right? But learning about Arba Bailan has been incredible, incredibly healing for me and fills me with love and helps me do that healing work and connect with spirit, but also like learn how to love better, like myself and my, my friends and my community, my family. So, I mean, that isn't to say that like, learning is my only source of like how I nourish myself but it's like anything that brings me into a relational space um where like I feel love flowing you know where my friends um and I are connecting in ways where like we might be able to express anger about something or resentment or frustration 
but we're held in the complexity of our feelings that we're not just our anger. And actually, I'm probably feeling joy, um, or I might be feeling grief. Um, and I can feel those things simultaneously. And so I'm not, oftentimes, you know, if I express frustration or anger around white folks, I'm reduced to that. Eva is an angry person. Or, oh yeah, she's really aggressive. Or really spicy, like that gets attributed to yeah. brown folks all the time, yeah. right? And so I won't be heard beyond the tone that they're perceiving as anger or the actual anger that I might be sharing. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, that's like a whole thing. And I know that that looks very different for black folks, especially black women. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I'm not even trying to make this like a blanket thing. Um, but being with friends, it's like super nourishing because it's like, oh, I can be my whole self. And I'm not reduced to this one thing. Like, even when I'm experiencing joy, they're not going to forget that I'm also moving through heartbreak, you know? Or they're not going to forget that, like, when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to get microaggressed, like, 75 times, mm -hmm. you know? Because mm -hmm. that's how it is here. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I think No, no, it does. It does. It sounds like you have a robust community that, well, I mean, com community that at least from friend groups that can hear you and validate you and, and go through the motions and, and of, of what, it, what it means and feels and the, con the contextual emotional journey you have to go through to be here. And so that you have that is absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I don't think I want to speak to something you say. I don't, in my mind, I think, um, I don't, I don't believe in the, that I am pro-black, meaning that I can't be pro-anything else, right? Like, um, there's a difference between... I, I'm a multiculturalist, you know what I mean? And at the same time, so I find myself the very, very... Um, I don't... I try really hard to not use my mind from a colonized perspective when it comes to the connection I have to black and brown people. So you're, you being an angry Filipina, uh, you know, to a white person, equating the same as me being an angry black woman to a white person, to me, it's all the same, right? Mm. It's not true. So <laughs> that's all there is to it, right? It's like, it's, it's absolutely false. I'm not, I, what their, their, um, their characteristic of my vulnerability is not anything that has to do with mine and or yours. And they are putting yeah. some anti-black racist, um, you know, super lens in front of their eyes that they cannot see me as a woman they cannot see me as hurt and they cannot see me as vulnerable that has nothing to do with me or you so i i see when someone says oh she's angry you know oh she's she's a feisty feisty latina or she's a feisty <laughs> filipina and i'm going interesting what does that mean honest <laughs> yeah, right right or maybe she was direct with you <laughs> one right. of the two right so you know we were actually that's a that's a, a meme i was gonna put I'm gonna a quote that I was gonna put on my uh, Instagram soon. It's like, uh, you know, was it was it dangerous or was it black? You know what I mean? It's like, let's be honest. Like, was it like was it feisty or was it direct? You know? Um, so it was, you know, or was it a direct or a direct comment from a black or brown person? Like, what? Let's let's think about how we're naming and and um, and contributing these characteristics it's not even it's not like a feeling it's like they don't give it to us as a feeling they give it to us as a character like as yeah. a, right it is our character and so so i reject all of that because I, I don't mind them believing and feeling that that is what it 
what they want to believe, but that does not mean I have to fall in line with it. I can very easily be like, oh, wow, I don't speak that language here. Like, I, I don't do that. Like, you know, that's, that you saw it as this, as this way, and I'm wondering at this point, are you okay? Like, did you, did you, that you saw that I was angry. Are you okay? Because what I was expressing wasn't anger, and you're seeing anger, so I think this might be about you. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, we have to reject that, that insistence that there is something wrong with us. You know, um, I get to do all of the things that they've ever done and more. Their description of it and their, the way that they see it is not my problem. And that's the, and it's the truth. We all know that the, we're all like, like if we go outside the country, we're all American. I know what you expect of me. And I, and I, and I know what's happening here when we have this confrontation, when we have a, 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 I don't know, a conversation. I understand what's expected. You know what I mean? I've been socialized and I know the context of this. Whether or not and how far I'm going to feed into it is really my choice. That's how I feel. They're always going to make me feel like I have to do one thing or the other. And perhaps if I'm in fear of the consequences like jail or death, right, then I will comply. That is always a constant conversation in my head. I have been arrested. I have been almost killed. But I'm thinking to myself, well... I guess I've done it, right? I guess I'm just going to have to continue being me. I'm going to have to continue to do what I feel is healthiest for myself and the loves of my lives, right? But what I won't do is let you tell me who I am. Yes, <laughs> I love that. You know what I mean? That's one thing yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, and, and it I'm not, does take a lot. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just, and it, at the same time, it's like more you actually get to keep more of yourself and your energy, you know? Like, how much energy are we expected to spend explaining ourselves or energy hiding ourselves to conform into a certain shape or space or whatever that we don't actually get to, like, do, like, live up to our potential, right? Right. Let alone just be a whole person. So, And that's yeah. to, just to be a whole damn person. Yeah. Just to be a whole damn person, right? So I, I personally, there's lots of, like, and we're almost up to time, of course. Um, but I personally love under, knowing, like, you've, you've shared the history of the Filipino-American uh, history that I didn't even know. And I was like, what? I want to know more about that. Tell me more. Like, you know, and so um, I feel like we just went to the uh, Chicago, Art Institute of Chicago, and it was so hard being in that museum. I love museums. I I love them. I love them. But I hate them just like people hate the zoo. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we're looking at this as art when these are people's rituals, spiritual rituals. These are people's, these are whole cultures, um, you know, spiritual sacred uh, holding. Like this is, this is not art necessarily. I mean, it's art, but it's not necessarily art in the way that we get to display it. And it was stolen. And it was, and it's been appropriated, and it's here for our entertainment. It's all gross. It's all disgusting. But with that all being said, we were in there being like, "Oh my God, we love it, and we hate it. We feel so nasty." Like we were like in there, right? And mm-hmm. the, at the same time, we were looking at it, um, and we were reading the descriptions, and I was like, "God, they will not say anything correctly in this shit. They will not even acknowledge the bullshit in the explanation of what it is." So we started just getting like, I can't even read them anymore. Like I really want to, so I started to just know where they were from, 
when they were mm-hmm. stolen, that's not what they said, but that's what, when they were stolen, <laughs> uh-huh. and what tribe they were from. I didn't want to hear any of that other bullshit. Like, because it, 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 it just started to read, like, just crap. Like, it was just, like, it was just crap. And so, anyway, all the possibilies, and we think perhaps, and maybe they would have done, and I was just like, I just want to know who they were and when you stole it. That's all I want to know. So, you know, and so it was, it was like I have to look at the, the museums differently. And I will, I'm continually, I will go. But, it's, but these are the places and spaces that you look at it. This is the places and spaces that we call our educated, our high, our high education, like, you know, our, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Our elite, you know. Oh, right. And it's mm-hmm. that bullshit, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not, we got to, it's, ugh. So anyway, all I was going to say was that um, I have been focusing a lot on not in my work, but in my mind and heart of how I can work more with other um, with other brown folks, black and brown folks to to make our connection more visible, meaning that like it's not about the, the oppression Olympics because we're still centering white folks, you know, and how we can how we can actually um, find our joy and liberation with each other, you know? Mm-hmm. How can I celebrate Filipino rights and history? How can you know uh, Samoans celebrate Black there in in our ancestry together? How can they celebrate Black you know history and um, and and present day? Resilience, you know what I mean. Like, how can how can Black folks get behind more people of color? How can we, uh, you know, support Mexican Americans, Cubans? Like, how can we get together and stop being like Black folks are this? Because in every of those, or Filipinos are this, or like, how can we get past that white centered mm-hmm. narrative and actually really join together in a real wholesome? I'm all real wholesome, you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> in a, a way that we can see each other and enjoy and, and feel the numbers. Like I feel when I'm in or in Chicago and I see black folks everywhere, I feel numbers. I want to be able to feel that. I do. When I travel, it doesn't matter where I go. If they're not, if they're black and brown, I'm fitting in. I'm, I'm hey, how you doing? I'm, I'm like, I'm making connections. But that's not how everybody feels who are mm-hmm. black and brown. And we should never feel that way. Yeah. yeah, that's how I'm looking at myself. Like, dang, how can we connect with uh, with our cousins like we're still family? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, decentering whiteness. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to be a journey. Oh, for real, it's, it is. It's, yeah, <laughs> oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, yeah. before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to say or or comment on or talk about? Um. Yeah, um, I'll try not to talk too long because sometimes I like lose track of time. But um, so I also um, have developed a, I'm calling it right now, a critical science workshop series. Um, and I launched the pilot last spring, summer. Mm-hmm. It was in June, July. And I'll have another one coming up soon um, this winter, so stay tuned. Um, and it, I called it Unsettling Science. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is not just to, like, self-advertise. But, you should. Um, you should. Something that I, like, <laughs> went in. So with a background in marine science, like, I've been in, 
like the Western science industry and institutions. And there's like amazing things that I've learned through science that are very affirming of my spirituality, um, my worldviews and, and have expanded my worldviews. And there's a lot of um, imperialism, colonialism and white supremacy, all these um, systems of domination and oppression that science not only perpetuates, but is used as a tool to enact that, right. To keep these systems in place. And so my, I, in my work, and I'm still learning a lot in this field, um, it's so that we can start lifting the veils to kind of actually look at science with a scientific approach, but also in more holistic ways. And part of that is just to reclaim um, our relationships to our, our bodies, ourselves, our wholeness, and to our relationship with land in more mm. sovereign ways so we can start pulling the colonialism out of our our minds and our bodies. Um, and to bring more solidarity between different peoples, right? Because that's so necessary. Um, but something that Anjali Nathupadia, who's one of my um, mentors and is just like one of the most incredible people I've had the honor to meet. Um, she is the founder of Liberation Spring, which is an adult freedom school. Um, one of the things that she said that has really been crucial to the my work around critical science mm-hmm. um, is, um, like science says that you need to be objective and neutral in how you observe something um, in order to do your research, in order to do good science. And so we already know when we bring in objective, neutral bias, who gets to be and who isn't, right? So we see that in journalism, um, everything. (laughs) Um, And with science, if you really look at it through a trauma lens, Anjali was saying like, if you don't see yourself as part of whatever you're observing, as existing in that space, as part of land, um, that is actually disembodiment. And through a trauma lens, like it, that's like that shows some sort of trauma that's happening. You're either creating or it's manifested out of trauma. To think that you are separate from the environment, to think you are separate from people you are studying, that you're not impacting the space with your presence and there's no relationship, that you can be outside and observe it objectively and neutral, There's that's a dissociation. And so this really helped me in the ways that I look at the way science is enacted, but this is what I see as a very core pattern that comes through white supremacy is this dissociation. And so like you, you know, you mentioned something around like, is it an illness? And I'm like, is it? Because there are so many ways that white supremacy operates that has us be dissociated from like incredible violence, you know, like to take black people, to take people of African descent and to deem them property, like not even, not even a living being, like that is some wildly dissociated disembodied nonsense right right and there those patterns are like i have found like this is like a thread that has woven the foundation and it is expressed in so many different ways across across our communities through our institutions through our policies um and and also like what is expected in order to be credible Mm -hmm. um is actually the more disembodied the more dissociated you are essentially the more traumatized you are, the more fractured you are, and you can be and can separate and, and fracture um, others, you know, humans and beyond human beings, um, usually you're seen as a very neutral person. And so I, re- I like to complicate 
our ideas of who's neutral um, and tie that to like when we're getting really obsessed with protecting our innocence too, right? Is actually, let's just break that down and look at these core threads. And so for me, and I just feel like I was hearing this so much in everything that you were saying, like there are so many parts of DEI, like so-called DEI work is about healing, you know? And like white folks need it too. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm going to do all the work for you. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, like there's so much of white supremacy and all the interlocking systems of oppression are causing so much trauma across the board and and even to our lands and to non-human species. And so that is like, for me, that is like a core thread of our work is like actually how are we creating integration, connection, relationship? How are we able to see things as interacting systems rather than separate entities so girl, yeah i can go on and on soft no no girl girl look hallelujah amen all of the things like i'm like like this is what i'm saying to you this is everything you just said like that is my oh my god girl you just started a whole nother podcast like we're gonna have to take break intermission like i mean honestly because this is like you literally have just said in such I have such bad work like I I feel like it's so funny that I'm I in a business that I need to speak because I I do not speak eloquently and you speak what you just said was so eloquent to exactly what I'm speaking about when we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast where I was like there is there is something very real that we need to speak about in terms of you know that black being like a pro-black approach or white folks being needing this healing, black folks needing this healing, how we're all needing to have that this work is based in a very deep spiritual healing. We, this is exactly what we talked about at the very beginning. It's an actual very deep spiritual healing and white folks are not outside of that. You know, now they may be a little bit further down the road in terms of understanding themselves connected to the trauma in which they had, but there is black, black and brown people in our, in our lived experiences spiritually outside and here in this 3D dimension world, right? That we actually are calling this kind of connection, right? We're calling we're suffering from the disassociation and we're calling for the grounding and the grounding is in each, in each other. And it's not just black folks for black folks, right? That's not, that's true. We need it because that community needs healing too. Filipinos for Filipinos, they need healing too. But the fact of the matter is, is that us together, there is a, there is a, a, a possibility and a strong association to how we belong on this earth together. And if we don't actually see that connection and honor our pain and suffering and honor our journey and our ancestral journey that, that, and to bring ourselves back into our body and connected to the earth, you know, and, to, and into each other. Like you said, you can't say that you're not connected. If, oh, you can say it all day long and, and just like be spilling out your trauma. But all, <laughs> but all I'm saying is that like if you don't see if I don't see me and, and, and my energy and my essence and, my, and, and what, I, what my body reverberates in the room to you and not understand how that's affecting you and the people around me, where, where am I actually, right? Where am I actually? It, the space in the, in the, 
in the, the space in the trees and in the, in the air. Um, it's funny, when I was traveling, like, I'm so tired today, and I hate that I'm so tired because this conversation is so invigorating. But um, I was traveling yesterday, when I went to Chicago, and I went, and I, I, set, I got into the city, and I said, I feel so strange. And my friend, who is indigenous, she's Paiute native, um, uh, was, was back in Eugene. And we, when we talk, we always go to a space and we go, like, I feel a change. Like, we always talk about how we go into a space and feel a change. She wasn't with us, um, but I had another girlfriend with us. And I, was, and I walked into the, the city and I was like, I don't feel anything. And she, they were like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> And it was weird because the first thing I did was I got into the space and I wanted to feel it. Like, I was like, what do I feel here? Like, where am I, where am I connecting to? Like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't feel anything. And, and, I, and I just was like, okay, relax. I was like shaking it off. I'm like, relax. Like, quiet your mind. Let's feel it. And I was trying to feel it. And I was like, I'm oddly comfortable. And, and I just kept like, I, it was just a very weird, like, there was nothing that I had to um, adjust or associate with it was just like a and keep and, and just go and, and that was weird to me because I thought I was going to have to like adjust myself somehow but I got in and it was just like everyone was familiar everything was comfortable and in a very much like not in an overly familiar way but in a like once you just hear yesterday type of familiar way right so it was odd it was odd but when I left and I'm just saying this to what you're saying about the connection, this disassociation of each other, that people move, like, like having that disassociated experience that that woman had with the woman from Nairobi. Didn't even think to think. Didn't even feel a connection. Didn't even feel a disconnection. Like just, just mowing right through the day. Like no association, no care, no connection, right? So I, was, I went to Salt Lake City and I was like, ew. I, I, I literally, like I told, I looked at my friend, I was like, and I go, and, I said, and we're back. Right? And she was just like, what do you mean? And I was like, no, don't you feel it? And she was like, I feel tired. And I'm like, I know it's tired. We got in at like midnight last night, one o'clock in the morning. So I was like, I know you're tired, but like, just watch, just watch. So we just like walking through the airport, getting on the little bus they had us take to go to the other airplane. And we were sitting there and we were just looking and she, she was like, yeah, I get it. And I was like, you get it now, right? You get it. The way people were talking to each other, the energy in the room had shifted. All of a sudden, we were different. They were not interested. We were outside of whoever they were doing. There was all of a sudden this very much like, you stand there, I stand there, we do not touch. Like there was this feeling. None of that was ever said, but it was clear and clear and very, very clear. So, I, so that is what I mean. When I, that is what I experience when you talk about that. Is I, I recall the experiences of the disconnection of people, of energy, of being in a room, being in a city, and feeling like I'm here with my people. And they're like, girl, they don't even know you. They don't have to because I feel us, right? But that part, I think, is something that people have to work at knowing that it's an important part about of being. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so powerful. Thank you. That, that, is, uh, that was really, 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 really powerful that you even brought that up. I'm so happy that you did. And I want to write it down so we can have another podcast when you come back and talk all about it. <laughs> all right. 
So we can connect it to the themes of the continuous gaslighting too. <laughs> yes, we can continue. You know what? I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> right? All right? Continuous gaslighting. I'm literally. Right. Right. I just like wrote up a whole new. Uh, I don't know if it's like a lesson or whatever, a course or workshop just on the structures of the or the construct of white supremacy's binary and how it limits our imagination of what is possible and what is already in existence. And so we think that we have to choose from one extreme to the other, um, like conservative, liberal, and actually liberal, if you actually look at how people like in the world and what oppression is and isn't liberal is not liberal right right and so right really looking at the constructs of these binaries created through white supremacy um, and being able to see beyond the scope Mm -hmm. um and how gaslighting that is like you even mentioned like something like how white supremacy like makes us get away from things that are more natural i was thinking about food and how much is stolen from so many other cultures and then they're invisibilized and so then it becomes a white thing like uh pumpkin spice lattes yes. we think of white girls right and i heard this uh i want to say in the red nation podcast um but they're like pumpkins are an indigenous food but we don't make that connection we don't think of, like well i should you know choose we however you want to hear it but right. dominant culture the idea is pumpkin spice lattes is a white thing right we're not making the connection that pumpkins are an indigenous traditional food to turtle island to the lands that we are occupying and on and then on top of that whiteness will take it all the way to the most toxic place because they like to make everything synthetic everything based out of chemicals so it becomes less and less natural Mm -hmm. but then the other spectrum of whiteness is if you go natural, now you're like the in the gentrification realm and the more like liberal, I care about land realm, mm-hmm. you're still invisibilizing indigenous people and where these foods actually come from. Mm-hmm. And so now natural thing is also associated with whiteness. And so like, that's the gaslighting I, I wanna talk about is like, you can go this whole spectrum and think that you're being more pro- progressive by going more natural, but it's like, progressive means you're going forward. So it's inherently linear, but it's actually backwards. So let's actually look at how whiteness is constantly doing these backwards ass things, you know? So anyway, I'm and that lends to the idea of that, that, that in that progressive, in that pro- being progressive is that they would actually go back to indigenous. Like it's in that, in that spectrum of it's racist in itself as if we're going to go back to doing this, but yet not going to who actually created how to, how to work the land, how to, to harvest these pumpkins. But we're going to go back to the original as if we were it, we're going back to the ancestry, but we're holding a little bit. It's not your ancestry, right? This is not a slow down. Right. And then you're not actually picking up where it came from. It's the same thing with black folks. Not understanding that, like working the land was not is not synonymous to being enslaved. It's something that Black folks we've done ever since, hand in hand with Indigenous people, right? You know what I'm saying? And even before, so in in our natural lands and our in our natural homes, this is what we did, right? This was taken from us and then rearticulated and reappropriated and then given back. Only if we could pay for it and, 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 and then have to get to a certain echelon to be able to be involved in it and then make it something specialized and elite 
that has nothing to do with anything other than commercialism and racism. And so it all goes hand in hand. Yes, sis, I am with you on that. Okay. (laughs) It's something that that gaslighting. um, But, you know, even when you're saying gaslighting, and I love because that centers our experience, like in that space, you know, that, that's, where the, that's where that white bullshit comes from. Why are you always talking about race? Why are you right? always talking about... Because it always is about that... Because this country, this so-called country, was founded on racism. Right. It was founded on colonialism and imperialism. And using white supremacy to, and anti-blackness to enact all of that. Yes. So we yeah. got to talk about it every day. <laughs> Right. So it's at, happening every day. Every day, it's happening right, right now. As you're talking to me, we are in this minute. In this minute, we are right here in it. <laughs> so I appreciate you so much, Eva. You know I do. Um, everyone listening, Eva is going to be working alongside Kids for the Culture, um, our uh, nonprofit here based in Eugene, and she'll be doing a workshop. I believe we called it. Um, what was the name of it? Hold on. Was it the failing one? Yes, failing, yes. Brilliantly. Uh, what did you say? Brilliantly. Yeah, failing brilliantly. Um, so quickly talk about what that is for, like how you put that together, um, because it has to do with the gaslighting as well, which I, which I absolutely love. And it's going to be, um, we are going to be, uh, ha- the, the classroom is going to be mostly middle school and um, high school students. And so you talking about failing brilliantly works, I think, is going to work really well against almost everything that we've talked about here with the gaslighting, uh, with the disassociation, with, uh, you know, the context of centering white innocence. All of that is based in your lesson plan in, other, in different ways. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to speak on that so people know. We also, um, I would love, Eva, honestly, to support working with you um, and us doing more like webinar style stuff so that we can get you up and out and, uh-huh. um, and get some income flowing. Like really, I would love to do that with you. I think it would be amazing. We have time, but I think, um, I'm, I, that's, that's coming on the, that's coming along for sure. I would love to do that with you. I love talking with you. Um, I love, I feel like the upward spiral um, when we connect. And so, yeah, any work you want to collaborate on, I, you know I'm here for. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and thank you. Um, so uh, the Failing Brilliantly workshop, uh, I originally was thinking about calling it Fail Up, and then I was like, mm, I don't like this binary language. Right. <laughs> um, and my friend CJ Sweet, who, who's actually the Poet Laureate of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, he's an amazing person, um, he <laughs> called it Failing Brilliantly in a youth camp that um, we, were, um, we have been part of for several years in California called Power of Hope. Um, we run it pretty differently than other Power of Hope programs, but we keep the core structure around um, creative, creativity and self-expression and youth empowerment. Um, and so in my work with youth, I and also I see this with adults too, and I experience this myself, but I have just seen a lot of fear of messing up, fear of not actually creating a perfect piece of art, fear of taking um, small creative risks. And um, behind that fear, a lot of the times is this fear of failing, fear of not being good enough, right? Um, And I was realizing like, 
in schools, we are incentivized and rewarded to be, um, to already know. Like we're actually not incentivized to learn because learning requires that we mess up sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're, how, if we always get things right, uh, we're missing something usually. Um, And schools, instead of teaching kids um, and allowing and supporting the space for youth to get it wrong or youth to not know the answer, what they actually are doing are just supporting the kids that already know whatever the the math formula is, uh, the answer to this thing, how to do the certain drawing technique, right? right? And so a lot of, so, and then if you mess up, there's shame associated with it, or there's actual punishment associated with it. Um, you, your grade gets lowered if you mess up, even though you're supposed to be there for learning. So that teaches our young people from a very young age not to put themselves out there if they don't already know how to do something. And so I was just seeing so many young people be held up in this way and really block uh, and hold, hold their creative expression and not just in arts, but like as a human, like we are creative beings. Right. And I was like, I wanna do a workshop where we can actually address this, play with it, engage with it in a way that's not so scary and, and fearful and actually we can support each other in messing up. And, um, and then the other thing I was thinking about is I did Aikido growing up and, and I also did dance growing up. And one of the things that we are taught is how to fall or yes. if we get pushed over or if we misstep, how do you fall? Mm-hmm. And so why aren't we teaching our young people how to fall, how to fail, mm-hmm. right? And so I do want to make a distinction. Like there's a lot of ways we can use the term failure. I'm not talking about failure that causes harm to others because it would be a separate uh, workshop around like responsibility and repair and you know like how how are we accountable? Right. Um, so this is more so like taking creative risk or raising your hand in class. So my workshop, I'm incorporating arts, somatic activities, discussion, um, and some playfulness and rhythm. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, um, and I just really want it to be centered around the youth's experience. Um, and one of the, one of the times that I held this workshop, there was conversation around the difference, um, in who can fail according to gender and race. And so we, we talk about it. We don't shy away from the fact that if you are a black youth, the way that you are treated, if you don't know the answer to a question in class or if you say the wrong thing, is vastly different from our young white folks. So mm-hmm. um, that's not pushed into the conversation, but if it comes up, we do address it. So that's kind of what, um, those are the pieces of what happens in that workshop. Yes, this workshop is gonna be so dope. I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. And I, I mean, honestly, like I'm talking to Anna, who's a co-director uh, with my nonprofit, too. And I'm like, I feel like we need to um, do yours like more than once for different people. You know what I mean? Just because it's so important. Like I, you did Aikido, I did Judo. And that was one of the first things that we learned is how to fall. Right. And it's, it's important. It's, it's absolutely essential to your success. You know what I mean? And so, um, yeah. And so that that. Putting that into a cognitive sense, into a spiritual sense, is so, so, so strong. It's so, it's like base foundational thought process. And so I, we gotta, we gotta sit down even and figure out how many people we can reach with this workshop because this, okay. it is so good. It's, I'm excited. And I believe we have you November 13th, right? 
Yes. Yes. So you guys will be seeing flyers. And if you don't see flyers for it, um, contact me directly. But you should be seeing flyers and registration um, to where you can meet with Eva, bring your children, um, and maybe we can discuss um, having a second one that is for adults and having, you know, failing brilliantly, girl, it's a lifelong lesson. <laughs> yes, I might be holding this workshop, but I'm taking it with you. <laughs> right, right. Um, I love it. So, okay, well, thank you so much for being here with me for this long, too. We totally went over time, but, you know, when it's good, it's good. There's nothing we can do, okay? <laughs> so, um, uh, thank you so much, Aisha. It uh, is an honor to be in conversation with you and just to know you. Uh, I respect and appreciate you so much. So, thank you for having me. Oh, my God. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I'm serious. I feel honored. I feel honored. <laughs> um, I wanted to tell you that a few things that, that we got comments here. So I just wanted you to read a couple comments and I will let my audio audience um, listen in as well. And then after this, we'll shut it down. If you have a couple more minutes, Eva. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So um, we have Carl Timberton, who is my dad. And he just says, we all have rituals with concern. Um, and then there's Carter McKenzie. Hello, Carter. She is a, a huge supporter of my, my podcast and of Patreon. So thank you so much. Um, and she has one comment that is very powerful articulation of the trauma caused by white supremacy across and through all systems which harm humans and beyond humans. Thank you for this discussion. And the next is looking at the constructs of white supremacy and its binaries and the limits regarding what is possible and what already exists. Yes, and the gaslighting and through those constructs, yes, I recognize this and how I have interrupted my own unconscious habits of thinking and seeing um, as a white person. And she put, thank you. So the, yeah, so those are the uh, three comments that we have so far. Um, I will be tagging you if you follow Black Girl from Eugene, Eva. I'll tag you and um, then people can interact as when we are off. And okay. people tend to comment and generally after the podcast post, the views will, will start to grow up. So I want to say to my folks on Podcast Audio Land, thank you again for joining me. And again, we're going every two weeks at this time. So I will see you again in two weeks with another guest and another subject and um, some more food for thought. This is Black Girl from Eugene, and I'm out.